0: We've been in this series for a few weeks now. This is week number 15. We have been synchronized week to chapter for a little while, but now that we're only covering the first little bit of chapter 15, that's not going to happen. So next week, it's going to be out of sync a little bit. But we're in sync right now, week 15 and chapter 15. And we've covered some really important ground in the book of Matthew. I'll just remind you of the key, most important concepts. First of all, Matthew is a writer who is trying to write to the super Jews of his day to let them know that the king has already come. The king, his name is Jesus. The problem is he's a king not like anyone expected. Everybody wanted a king who would establish an earthly kingdom, vanquish their enemies, and lead them in glory and bring the glory of the world back into Jerusalem. You know, maybe rebuild Solomon's temple so that it was as glorious as it was back in the days of Solomon. Everybody back then had a very nationalistic viewpoint on what it meant to follow God And Jesus shows up and he is none of those things. He is completely uninterested in rebuilding the temple. In fact, he prophesies the temple's going to be destroyed and it won't ever be rebuilt again. That's what Jesus says. And, And Jesus is in the place where he says, Listen, I'm the temple. So you've got something greater than the temple. Now you've got me. So he's like bypassing all of that old stuff. He then talks about what it means to be a king. He talks about being a leader and all these things. And we see that Jesus is better than David. He's better than Moses. He's better than anyone that has ever come before in Israel's history. And Matthew wants you to know it. There's just one big problem. He is never on your side. He is only ever on God's side. And one of the things that is true about his heavenly father is that his heavenly father loves all people. So if you are on the father's side loving people, then you are on Jesus' side, but he didn't come to be on your side so that your enemies could finally be defeated or anything like that. Jesus came to be a sacrificial king, to be a servant king. And the question that we've been wrestling with so far is can we follow a king who's not going to fight our battles? Can we follow a king who won't defeat our enemies? Can we follow a king who won't raise us up to glory while we're here on this earth? Can we follow a king who dies on a cross because eternal life is better? Is that the kind of king that we're willing to follow? And we've raised a lot of questions, but last week we asked this question well, wait a minute, who is this Jesus really? And we learn three essentially huge, just important things. We learn that Jesus is God in the flesh. But we also learn that Jesus has absolutely incomparable power and absolutely unstoppable compassion. Today we're going to see his compassion play out in a way that touches at the deepest part of who we are as people and the deepest part of who we claim to be as religious people, as Christians, as those who would show up at church on a Sunday morning. Jesus' compassion intertwines with all these things. But I'm just going to start out with this basic baseline question. When I was, um, I don't know, in college, I guess it was, there was a really popular worship song that showed up. And that worship song that was super popular was called The Heart of Worship. And some of you know this song. I'm coming back to The Heart of Worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And it's a, it's a good song. Don't get me wrong. I sang it so many times. It's one of the songs that I wore out and then later on came back to because it's a good song. You know what I mean? But maybe you don't know the story of how it was written. It was written at the time where there was this church in England uh, and one of the musicians at the church was a guy named Matt Redmond, the guy who wrote the song and later on became super famous. But anyway, at this church, they were getting really, really, really into their worship music. They were getting high-skilled people writing music. It was just—it was going gangbusters with regard to the music end of things. And the pastor had a conviction on his heart at one point in time when he began to feel like maybe the people were paying too much attention to the music and not so much attention to the God they were supposed to be worshiping. And so he just canceled it for a while. The pastor said, okay, we're going to cancel all music for a period of time, no more music in the church, and I don't want you to listen to worship music when you're home. I want you to discover what it means to love God without the crutch of music. I want you to discover what it means to read your Bible and worship the God who's in there and to pray to him and to fast and these sorts of things. Anyway, I can't remember how long it was, one month, two months, six months, something in that range. And then they finally decided, okay, it's time for us to bring some music back to Sunday morning. And Matt Redmond, one of the worship leaders, was writing songs and he decided to sit down and write a song that would be the first song the church sang when they got back together. And that's why the line begins, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart to God. Not not something that's going to bless my heart. When the music fades and all is stripped away, and, you know, over the last 18 months, we've had a lot of stuff stripped away from us. The the church experience has been stripped away from us in many regards, and there are some churches that have continued to try to feel like things are normal. There are some people that have tried to live like normal, but none of us have actually been able to successfully live like normal. Lots of stuff has been stripped away from us. Smiles for 18 months have been stripped away from us. That's an incredibly annoying thing. I never thought it would be that much of a problem. But so much has been stripped away from us. And the question is what would God think of our worship over this last 18 months? I'm sure there's some churches that would say, God's going to be happy with our worship because we kept showing up every Sunday at the church building and we kept singing the songs and we kept, you know, all that stuff. We kept doing all the things that we were doing before, we maintained the tradition. And so, therefore, God has got to be happy with us. And other churches are going to be like, no, we didn't, we threw all the tradition out and then we did something completely different. And God's going to be happy with us for those reasons. And the question I would ask you and for me is over this last period of time, would God say that he was pleased with your worship, with my worship, with our worship? Well, honestly, that's a question you can't answer. Because we can't read God's mind, we don't exactly know what he's pleased with when it comes to the specific behaviors we have done. We know some aspects of it, but there's one big question that I can answer for you today. Well, I'll ask the question, you have to answer it for yourself. What God really wants is not your tradition. What God really wants is not your keeping up with the appearances. What God really wants is your heart. And so that's the question. Does God have my heart? Does God have my heart? A law-giving God doesn't care about your heart. He only cares about your obedience. But a compassionate and loving God cares about what's going on on the inside of you. That's the question we have to answer. Does God have my heart? When it comes to you, when it comes to God, when it comes to your relationship with Him, when it comes to this church There's only one question that matters. Does God have our heart? In Matthew chapter 15, Jesus gets asked a question at the beginning that absolutely flips a switch in his heart. And you have seen Jesus mad if you've ever read the story of Jesus in the temple where he's got the whip and he's overturning all the money tables, money changer tables and all that stuff. But maybe you haven't thought of Jesus being a guy who gets mad other times. I believe in this story you're going to see angry Jesus. And since it's words without tone... It's hard for us to know exactly, is Jesus, like, super calm angry? Is he actually super calm, or is he letting people know how mad he is? But I think you'll see it in just a little bit. Here we go. Let's jump in. Matthew 15, verse 1, it says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before, they're, before they eat. When you were a little kid, your parents told you to wash your hands before you ate. They told you to wash your hands. Now, the reason parents tell little children to wash their hands before they eat is because little children play with snails, and little children play with mud, and little children play with other little children, and little children play with their own noses. And so because little children play with so many things that you do not want to put into your mouth, Parents say to the little children, wash your hands before you eat. Wash your hands before you come to the dinner table. If we hold hands when we're praying, I want that kid's hands to be washed. I mean, seriously. And these days, we've all learned about washing hands, right? You learn the happy birthday method of washing your hands. I don't want to ask how many of you got really super sick with the happy birthday song last March and then made up your own song, or how many of you just simply said, forget the 20 seconds, I don't care, I have so much sanitizer in my car, and so, you know, I'm just never, I'm never going to wash again, I'm just going to every single five minutes slather up with the hand sanitizer. I don't know what it is for you, but the the big point that I want to make is that this tradition has nothing to do with cleanliness. This tradition that these Pharisees are talking about is not about hygiene. It's about ceremony. They say to Jesus, why don't your disciples wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders? Now, it was never a law given by Moses that you had to wash your hands before you ate. Never. But there was a thing that happened in ancient Israel where people began to split up after they were sent off into Babylon. You know that story of the Israelites doing all the bad stuff worshiping the idols and all that jazz. And then God sent them off into Babylon. And then while they were in Babylon, they said, we better get our act together and come back. And so then eventually they did come back and they said, God, we're going to follow you with our whole life. Well, then 400 years passed and no new prophecies showed up. But during those 400 years, what happened is all these people said, we want to learn what it means to really follow God. And so we're going to study the Bible. We're going to study the Old Testament. We're going to study the scriptures that we have. And we're going to determine what it means to follow God. And some people wrote up as rabbis or teachers, and these rabbis or teachers or elders, they were sometimes called, began to teach people, the, the Israelites, how to obey God's law. There's just one problem. Obeying God's law when you're not the absolute like king of the world is really kind of difficult back then because a lot of God's law was based on nation building. The law that God gave them at the mountain of Sinai was so that they could become the nation of Israel and so that eventually they could be a good national thing. And so a lot of the law was kind of nationalistic and it was hard to apply that to a situation where you were now a a vassal kingdom of other kingdoms. It was difficult. But the bottom line is that these scholars began to interpret the scriptures and make new traditions, not laws, but new traditions. Let me show you one place where this washing hand tradition probably showed up. It's in Leviticus chapter 27. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Keep going. It says, Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Okay. So if you're going to enter God's house... You better be clean. And because you need to be clean, we're going to do the ceremonial washing out in front so that everybody watching you sees you acting like you are cleaning yourself. Now, it's not a full wash. They're not getting bathed. They're not doing soap. It's just a basin of water, but it's a ceremonial kind of thing. And so wash that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. Keep going. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants for the generations to come. A couple things to note. One, they're supposed to wash their hands before they make a sacrifice that involves food. In other words, they have to wash their hands before they're handling the food that is going to be sacrificed to God. They should wash their hands before they touch any food, right? You're picking up on that? Also, also, this is for the priests and only the priests. It's for Aaron and his descendants. It's for the priests when they enter the tabernacle or the temple. It's for the priests when they sacrifice a food offering. That's who it's for. But somewhere along the line, someone said, well, wait a minute. All food is kind of a sacrifice to God because if we eat the food with sort of a reverent idea towards God, then that food is kind of a sacrifice. And and all of us want to be pure like the priests. And so if the priests are washing their hands before they touch this food that is going to be offered to God as a sacrifice, then it makes good sense for us to have a tradition, for us to just do the same thing. How about all of us also wash our hands before we touch any food, before we eat any food. Let's, do, let's not bother with the foot thing. We'll have the servants wash our feet when that, when that becomes necessary, but, but we can do the ceremonial washing of the hands You know, before we eat. That's a good idea. How about let's do that? And over time, it becomes the thing that they do. And the Pharisees now are all uptight about getting their act together with God, and so they say to Jesus, Jesus, how come your disciples are walking around and just snacking whenever they want to, and they don't bother eating whenever you go to someone's house to have a... They don't bother washing their hands whenever you go to someone's house to have a party. Uh, Jesus, why do you break this tradition? And the reason I just mentioned all this stuff is because you need to realize the thing that you've already known and you've experienced so many times in your life, if you've ever gone to a church... There is a lot of religious stuff that God never said. Jesus is going to get really mad. This flips a switch for him, and I'll show you that in just a little bit. But I want you to write this down, because sometimes, sometimes there is something that sounds like God when it's totally not. Oh, you mean we're all supposed to wash our hands before we eat? Well, that makes sense because the priests washed their hands before they performed the sacrifice. And so all of us are doing kind of a little bit of a sacrifice. That sounds like God could probably have said that. I mean, I haven't read all of Leviticus, but I know there's a lot of interesting laws in Leviticus. And so maybe God said, yeah. God probably said something. And if you tell me God said that, well, then I'll believe you. We'll go with it, and I'll tell my kids, and then they'll tell their their kids, and we'll just keep spreading this tradition. We'll just make it something that we always do all the time. Sometimes a thing can sound like it's from God when it's really not. I I thought this might be fun. Um, I would just share with you some things that God has never said. Would you like to see some things that God has never said Okay, here we go. Some things that God has never said. Number one, you need to pray before you eat. Ha <laughs> ha, did I catch you? See, back then they were like, you don't need to wash your hands before you eat. The tradition was you should wash your hands before you eat. But Christians today have a different tradition before we eat, right? Sometimes we call it saying grace, Even non-Christians know the concept of saying grace before they eat their food. There are some memorized prayers that were popular in the Catholic Church that you would say before you eat your food. When I was in daycare, there was a prayer, you know, God is great, God is good, let us thank Him for this FUD. And there's just this, I never understood the rhyme scheme of that one. I just, it never really, God is great, God is good. Uh, maybe, anyway, but the, th- the thing is, nowhere in Scripture, nowhere, anywhere in the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament, anywhere, does God ever say you're supposed to pray before you eat? It doesn't show up. Here's another one. You need to close your eyes when you pray. How many of you know that one, you know? Um, God never said that you have to close your eyes when you pray. Now listen, there's some good reasons to close your eyes when you pray, because I've seen some of you, and when I'm praying, I don't want that picture in my mind. You know, when I'm praying, I want to focus on God. And so what I want to do is when I'm praying, I like to just close, off my, close my eyes and think about God and pray to Him. And I'm not picturing really anything in my mind. I'm just not looking at you, and that's really helpful. You know, the, the idea of praying with your eyes closed makes a lot of logical sense, and it's a tradition when I was a kid. You know, fold your hands, close your eyes, bow your head, and we're gonna pray. And I never understood that either because this isn't really a fold, is it? But that's what they told me to do. They told me to fold your hands. And if I was really folding my hands, it would look more like this, right? I don't know. Anyway, so that's not in the Bible. Closing your eyes when you pray. It's it's not in the Bible. There's good reason for it. It's just not something God ever said. Look at this next one. You need to say amen at the end of your prayer. Did you know that's also not in the Bible? There's a good reason to say amen at the end of your prayer. Amen is a Hebrew word that means I'm really serious. Amen is a Hebrew word that is also sometimes translated faith. I believe this. Amen is a word that in Hebrew meant I'm serious, I really believe this, I agree with you, I'm going for it. And so even today, people might say amen when they agree with someone else and what that person just said, because you know it's sort of become this cultural kind of phenomenon, even though amen is a Hebrew word. In Greek, do you realize that when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, that prayer does not end with an Amen. Do you realize when Jesus prays, he doesn't end his prayers with an amen? You know when Jesus uses the word amen most commonly? It's when he's talking to human beings. And it's the first word he says, not the last word he says. He'll say, amen, I'm in. I'm telling you something. It translates into the English language as verily, verily, I tell you. Or truly, truly, I tell you. But in the original language, Jesus was saying, amen, amen, I'm going to tell you something. It's not something Jesus ever taught, not something the Bible ever says. There's good reason. Amen is a Hebrew word that says I'm serious. You could end your prayers just by saying, and God, I'm serious. That's fine. That's totally fine. You just translated the word. But there's another good reason to say amen. It's the universal prayer I'm done word. And that's okay. When you're praying with other people, it's okay to have a universal prayer I'm done word so that the other person knows they can open up their eyes. (laughs) Right? Okay, so that's not something God ever said, but it's, some, it's a tradition, right? Here's another one. Here's another one. You need to come to church on Sunday. That's something God never said. It's, it's nowhere. And now, it's a good idea because Sunday is a very convenient time for us to get together since we live in a culture that gives people a weekend usually. So it's a good idea to take advantage of one of those days from the weekend to gather together in worship. But do you realize the New Testament church, they met every time they could. They met during the week. They met in the morning. They met at night. They met whenever they wanted to, whenever they could. And in Hebrews, it says you should not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. It's this idea that we should be encouraging one another all the time. God never specifically said Sunday. He also never specifically said Saturday. If you've ever, you know, talked to a person who says, no, I go to church on Saturday because that's the Sabbath. That's God's holy day. God never said you should go to church on the Sabbath. What he said was is you should do no work on the Sabbath. And we could get into all that, but it's just nothing that you ever find in Scripture. It's a tradition. It's not necessarily a bad tradition, but it's not something God ever said. Keep going. Here's another one. You need to give sacrificially to your church. Have you heard people say that? You need to give sacrificially to the church. There's examples in the Bible of people giving sacrificially. And there are times when Paul encourages someone to give sacrificially. But even in those times when he encourages someone to give sacrificially, he never tells them they have to. There's no place where God ever said, you have to give sacrificially. In fact, there's no place in the New Testament where God even says a Christian has to give a tithe. The Old Testament has a very clear command that God wanted the people of Israel to give a tithe. Jesus says the tithe is a great principle to follow, but nowhere in the New Testament does it say you have to. Now, I do it as a sense of family obligation for me and for my family. I've taught them that way because I think it is good, smart stewardship to recognize that all that I have comes from God. And so I'm only going to use 90% of it. I mean, I think, I think that's an easy way for me to approach this situation. But it's nothing that God ever specifically said. Keep going. A couple more. You need to burn bad books. Yes, God never said pile up a bunch of books and burn them. It's never, never once come out of God's mouth. Look at this next one. You need to listen to only Christian radio. That's never, it's never been spoken by Jesus. It's not in the pages of the Bible. God never said that. What about this one? You need to avoid all alcohol. Okay, that's also not in the Bible. There's a, there's a place in the New Testament where Paul tells Timothy he needs to start drinking wine because the water in his town was too nasty and it was messing up his intestines. And so Paul was like, start drinking some wine, buddy. It's really Okay. It's really, really fine. Go ahead. Jesus drank wine at the, last, at the Last Supper. Different from our wine, probably. But remember, Jesus made the best wine these people had ever tasted at his first miracle where he turned water into wine, and everybody was like, wow, that's the good stuff. Anyway, I just, I just felt like I needed to say that. Uh, there are good reasons to not drink alcohol. There are really good reasons to avoid it. There are really good reasons to never let it in your home. It's just nothing God specifically said. Or, or one more. You need to be politically blank. Fill in the blank with any word you want. Conservative, liberal, neutral, engaged, uninvolved. No word that you can put into that sentence results in a sentence that God said. Not a single word that goes into that blank is a word that is a phrase that God said. God doesn't need you to be more conservative. He doesn't need you to be more liberal. He doesn't need you to do any of those particular things because all of those things are based on principles that may or may not have fingers that touch the Scriptures, but they don't come from the Scriptures. There is absolutely nothing about what we've said that should be considered essential for a follower of Jesus. And when he hears the Pharisees start talking about tradition, he goes off on them. Take a look at what he says next. Jesus replied, and why do you... Now, you can read this in your own tone of voice. It's possible Jesus is like just super chill. Okay, so why do you guys break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? But I don't think Jesus would say the phrase, break the command of God for the sake of your tradition, in sort of a really soft way maybe he was passive aggressive okay so why do you guys break the command of god for the sake of your tradition or maybe this is how i kind of hear him jesus sighs at the beginning and he's just like why do you guys break the command of god for the sake of your tradition?" For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that which might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Jesus here says these guys had developed a tradition that destroyed the command. Let me just quickly explain it to you. It's a, it's a tradition, a legal thing that the the first century Jewish people had developed that was um, it was called the tradition of korban, or the, the legal kind of practice of korban, and korban refers to when you have de- when you have um, donated something to God dedicated it to God, devoted it to God, what you were allowed to do with it after then. Now, there's some Old Testament passages that give us some insight on how to deal with something you've dedicated to God, but they're really difficult to understand. Let me show you one of them. Take a look at this. It says, if the one who dedicates a field wishes to redeem it, they must add a fifth to its value, and the field will again become theirs. If, however, they do not redeem the field or if they have sold it to someone else, what, wait a minute, Leave that there for just a minute. So here's the deal. God had made a very clear set of laws that were when you donate something to God, when you, when you dedicate something to God, what you're supposed to do with it. If you dedicated a human to God, you were supposed to pay the value of that human to the temple or tabernacle and keep your human. If you dedicated an animal to God, you had a choice either you could sacrifice that animal or you could pay a sum of money to the temple or tabernacle and keep your animal. So the dedication was like, I'm going to give money to the work of God and I'm going to give money to the work of God in honor of this animal, in a a sense. That's kind of almost like what it was. But I'm dedicating the... They didn't think of money as the real thing. They thought of the animal as the real thing. And so they were donating, they were dedicating the animal to God. That was the real thing. And then they were using money to keep the animal around. And there were a number of things like that. And so for a field, if you dedicate a field to God, you can then later on redeem it or immediately redeem it using money so that you keep the field to yourself. Except, did you see that one little phrase, or sold it? Or if they have sold it, That meant if I dedicated a field to God, before I redeem it, I can sell it to someone else. So that means I get the financial benefit of the sale even though I have dedicated this to God. They allowed that. That sounds weird to me. Hard to understand what's going on. Keep reading. And it says, when the field is released in the Jubilee, it will become holy, like a field devoted to the Lord. It will become priestly property. See, every 50 years, all property was supposed to revert back to its ancestral owners. And so if I'm the one who owns the field, and I've dedicated it to God, but then I sold it to this other person, in the year of Jubilee, that property is supposed to come back to me because I've sold it. It's supposed to come back to me because that's my family's property. But what it says is that because I dedicated it to God, it comes back to me and then becomes God's permanently. So I can either sell it, or I can use it, or I can redeem it. And if I redeem it, then in the year of Jubilee, it still is mine. If I don't redeem it, it eventually goes to God. Here's the thing. The rabbis were asking the question, what do we do with a person who donates something to God? but still has the property. Ah, they came up with an answer. Here's what we do. That person can benefit from it. He can farm it. He can sell it. He can benefit from it. If he never redeems it, it will eventually go into the temple treasury 50 years or so into the future. Eventually, it'll happen. But right now he can use it. There's just one problem. Since it's Under his stewardship, he can only use it for his own benefit. He can't use it for someone else's benefit. He can't use that for his neighbor's benefit. He can't use that for his parents' benefit. He can only use it for his own benefit and the benefit of his children. That was the rule they came up with. So here's your out. Your mom needs to be put into a nursing home. And those things are expensive. And so guess what? Immediately before she heads to the nursing home, you surreptitiously donate your property to the temple. You're like, I'm just going to give all my property to the temple. And then mom says, by the way, son, I'm going into a nursing home. Can, I, can you help me out financially? And you say, sorry, mom, I dedicated my field to the temple, so I can't really use that to help you. And that was the tradition. That was the rule. And that makes Jesus so mad. Because Leviticus never intended for that to be the outward flow of this thing. In fact, earlier in Exodus, we read in the Ten Commandments these words. It says this, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. That's one of the ten. Jesus says you're violating one of the ten commandments for your stupid little tradition. See, here's the truth. Sometimes, more often than we would want. Sometimes, the thing that sounds spiritual is just selfish. Oh, I'm dedicating this field to God. I'm so spiritual. I'm giving my entire family's fortune to God. Oh, Mom, I'm sorry. I can't help you because I've given all of that wealth to God. I can't give even a penny to you. I sound so spiritual. Let's just be honest. This is why people are not Christians today. Because we have never outgrown this. No religious person has ever been able to outgrow this mentality. The mentality that says, if I can make myself sound spiritual, but be selfish, count me in. And then there's a whole bunch of world around us that says, listen... I'm selfish and comfortable with it. I don't want to sound spiritual on top of it. And so they just avoid the church. They're like, we don't want to pay attention to a bunch of people who are doing the same thing we're doing or just as hypocritical as us. And you know why I call that hypocritical? It's because as we're going to see in the next few verses, Jesus calls it hypocritical. But I want to move quickly because there is, one spe- there is a number of different ways that I have heard people in churches act spiritual while really being selfish. I want to share some of those phrases with you. Things I have overheard at church. Here's the first one. That's not my gift. I usually hear this when uh, people are asked to work in the children's ministry where I'll say, hey, you've got kids. Obviously, you haven't killed your own kids yet. Can you work in our children's ministry to help those, those children stay alive for a couple hours while they're at church? You know, and they'll say, oh, sorry, that's not my gift. And I'm like, it sure looks like your gift. Your kids are fed. They're mostly dressed, and they seem to be, you know, human. And so, you know, it's okay. It it's not but no, no, it's not my gift. And when I say gift, I'm talking about the spiritual gifts. And there's nowhere in the Bible where it says the gift of childcare. It's just not in there. And so, no one has the gift of childcare. It's not my gift. And so I'm just But I've also heard people say this when it comes to sharing your faith with someone. Oh, evangelism, it's just not my gift. It's not part it's not I'm not good at it. It's not something I could do. I use this excuse at home Okay, When the dishes are piled up on the counter, I'm like, honey, it's not my gift. I've never said those words because they would not work, and they would backfire, and I know it, and it is stupid, it's dumb, it's just unwise, don't do it, don't play that game with your spouse, don't play that game with God. (laughs) It's just not my gift. Here's another one I've heard people say, God isn't leading me to that right now. That's also used when it's about volunteering, but also sharing your faith or something along those lines, or maybe even giving some money to a project. God isn't leading me to that. What about this next one? I'm not being fed. Oftentimes, when people leave a church, that's what they'll say. They'll say, I'm not being fed here at this church, and so I'm going to something else. But what about this next one? That's just who God made me. So I have a temper. That's just who God made me. The people around me have to get used to it. The people have to just realize I don't really mean everything that I say. And so that is just absolutely something that we need to throw out. So here we go. Let's shut this thing down because I want to give you some stuff that you can take home. Verse 7. It says this, verse 7. You, hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Here's the thing. Jesus looks at these people and he is upset. He is mad. He calls them hypocrites. And he says, Isaiah was right about you. You might have given them your lip service. You might have given God your lip service, but you have not given God your heart. Jesus cares far more about your heart. In fact, write it down this way. God doesn't want your spirituality. He wants your heart. There's so many ways we can sound spiritual but just be selfish. There's so many ways we can make things up that sound like God, but they're really not. But to help you take this home, I'm going to give you two things from the final section. Verse 10, Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Verse 15, Peter said, Explain the parable to us. about eating and puking. And he says, the stuff that you put into you doesn't make you dirty. The stuff that comes out of you makes you dirty. It's the stuff that comes out of you that's gross and repulsive. It's the st- That's my wife. <laughs> She's trying to notify me that Kate's dance moved up to being first. And uh, that means I don't think there's any possible way I can get there in time. So... That annoys me, but I don't know what to do with it. Anyway, maybe we'll cut that out of the video. But here's the deal two last things. Two last things. Jesus is saying that what goes into you doesn't make you nasty. What comes out of you makes you nasty because what's nasty is already in you, it's your heart. God wants your heart. Eating with unwashed hands is never going to affect your spirit. The way we talk demonstrates what's in our spirit. God wants your heart. But then there was this other little thing in there. You know, Peter says, hey, the the Pharisees don't like you, Jesus. And Jesus says, well, I don't like them either. He says, they're the weeds that weren't planted by my father. They're the weeds in the garden that really should have been pulled out, but they're not going to be pulled out until the end. But I'll let you know this, Jesus says, they are blind and they are leading blind people. I just want to let you know something. Anytime you follow a leader who is leading contrary to who they they are, you are following a blind leader. When you follow a spiritual leader who's using human wisdom, you are following a blind leader. When you are following a human leader who's acting spiritual, you are following a blind leader. Anytime, anytime you are in a situation where the person with authority is trying to leverage spiritual authority for something earthly, you are following a blind leader. And Jesus would say, you can't pull him up by the roots now, but my Father will one day. See, You don't need leaders. You don't need traditions. You don't need another set of things to memorize or to do. You need God. Your heart needs God. The last song that we're going to sing today, and I'm going to ask Brooke to go ahead and keep doing that, but I'm going to skip out. Um, The last song that we're doing today is a song that just simply says, make room. It's a promise between you and God that says, God, I'm going to make room for you. In my little heart, I'm going to give you my heart, and I'm going to make room for you to be in my heart. I want to encourage you to be people who, even though you might be doing some of the traditions, even though you might continue to say amen at the end of your prayers, I do, even though you might continue to close your eyes, even though you might continue to wash your hands, which you should, I want to encourage you to be people to recognize that God wants your heart, and your heart desperately needs God. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.